The devil doesn't need to be on the throne of our lives as long as something other than Jesus is. Hello, you're listening to the Greek to Me podcast, a daily discovery of the New Testament scriptures one word at a time. We hope today's podcast helps you better understand and appreciate God's word. Today our word is proskuneo. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew recording the Magi's journey to find the Savior born in Bethlehem, Matthew writes, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. The word I want to draw here is the word worshipped him. As they arrive, presumably two or so years later after Jesus' birth, they fell down and worshipped him. And you'll often see those words together, and that's for a reason. Proskuneo in the Greek means worship or to give reverence to, but it literally means to kiss at or to kiss to. And the picture is kissing the ground while prostrating before the object of your worship. By the time this word was used in biblical Greek, the bowing posture, the falling to the ground or falling low, had become part of the word, an inseparable part of its meaning. We see it with the Magi in our passage. We also see in Revelation chapter 4 when the 24 elders, quote, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. We also see it in Matthew chapter 28, verse 9, when the resurrected Jesus meets his disciples and they come up and, quote, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. In Matthew chapter 4, we have the most ironic use of proskuneo because it involves the devil. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, Matthew records, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, that is Jesus, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's hard to imagine with this scene, Jesus refuting the devil here with Scripture like he did throughout the entire temptation scene. And it's hard to imagine Jesus being phased at all by any of these temptations. But here in this final temptation of the devil with Jesus in the desert, it reveals something significant about our enemy's chief objective, his his goal with all of this. It's nothing less than worship, to receive worship from none other than Jesus, from God. The the devil here is completely shameless. He's trying to catch the God-man in a moment of physical weakness uh, to get him to commit sin, and here in particular, the sin of idolatry and pride. What a pathetic grab for power and exaltation. You think the devil would have learned his lesson by now after being cast out of heaven due to this same sort of insatiable hunger for worship. In Isaiah chapter 14, it describes what most believe to be the fall of Satan. It says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Because you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, and I will make myself like the most high. 
You can see the imagery there. He is sent low for this act of pride, and we see his pride in all of the intentions here represented by words like high and above. Well, he hasn't learned this lesson, and he wants the same thing still, but he's often not so picky when it comes to our worship. He demands that Jesus worship him directly, but being approached by the devil himself soliciting us for worship would no doubt spook many of us. And he knows that he doesn't have to get us to worship him in order to tempt us with idolatry or to steal glory from God. No, all our spiritual enemy has to do is to get us to turn our worship, to turn our affections, our adoration, our love that is uniquely and solely reserved for God and to give it to anyone or anything else. The devil doesn't need to be on the throne of our lives as long as something other than Jesus is. See, the thing about proskuneo is it's expressed by complete surrender at a heart level, and it's demonstrated by falling low, even laying on the ground. The message is basically this, I am low and you are high. I am small and you are big, and if I could give more, and if I could bow lower than the earth, I would. That is not the kind of reverence you show just anyone, and it's not even the kind of worship you can give more than one person. Worship is like the service mentioned in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. He ends up saying you cannot serve God and money here, but the idea is the same. Likewise, you cannot give worship that God alone deserves to anything or to anyone in addition to God. And the moment you do, the moment we do, we've not given him what he alone is deserving of. So we see this in the worship of the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4. It continues like this. They continue and say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. They're giving God worship, and how do we know that only he is deserving of this? Well, only he was able to do these things. Only he pre-existed and created all that we see, and so only he is deserving of the glory, honor, and power. If the devil trying to grab worship from God, here is the most ironic use of the word, then Matthew chapter 15 contains the most nauseating use of proskuneo. And it takes place during Jesus' crucifixion, and Mark records this. The soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away into the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloth and put his own clothes back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. The mockery portions of the Passion of Jesus are the most difficult to read, and for good reason. It's partly because Jesus is receiving such abusive treatment. But the other part is because I know, as I read this, I know that I too am capable of offering Jesus insincere worship. I would never mock him intentionally or consciously. I, I do love him enough to never do that. But how often am I content by simply kneeling before him instead of falling down before him? How often with the way that I live my life do I stop at mere recognition of his goodness, maybe in a prayer or a song, 
instead of going farther to kiss the ground like the woman in Luke 7 and kiss and anoint his feet repeatedly. How easy it is to give a subtle form of worship to other things, giving our love or trust to good things that God himself gives us instead of giving our love and adoration and worship to the giver himself, to him as the creator and as the only one deserving of complete surrender and glory and honor and worship. It's true that everything and everyone else in our life that we consider a valuable or meaningful priority is a distant second. So, Christian, may our lives be daily and symbolically lived in the posture of worship. And may every aspect of our life be just another opportunity to show our uncontested devotion and love for him. Because at the end of the day, may we be convinced of this truth more and more that he alone is holy, he alone is wise, and he alone is good. And so he alone is worthy of our worship.